All right, we're live. Welcome to a regenerative future, Steve. It is awesome to have you on here. It is so wild because I I knew about you before I met you, and it it your name came up the like other than Elaine Ingham the most in my regenerative soil course because there are so many cannabis growers in there, and I was like, if you don't have soil, I don't know how you could have these other processes happen. You know, I'm always willing to be, you know, wrong. <laughs> but, but it, all these, all these students came to me, and these were growers, many of them commercial growers. Uh, and they were like, you got you have to check out the work of Steve Raisner. And it and I was so excited, when I heard that you were going to be at myceliate, because we got to meet, we got to connect, we got to become friends. And uh, I'm just so grateful to, to understand where you're coming from and to, to, to share this with everybody because it's really exciting. So this was like a problem in my mind, like the hydroponics, like they're using all these like petrochemically like derived solutions. And then in aquaponics, I was like, I was all on board with it until I deep dived into the soil. And then I was like, well, how does it work without that? And I, it was like a drop off in my understanding um, as to how that could be perfectly like healthy. And so your solution though, I want, I, how about you just share with, with everyone the story of that? Because that, that opened my mind to so many new possibilities. So um, back when I first started the aquaponics source, about two weeks after I started there, um, the, the lady that used to run it, her name was Sylvia Bernstein. Um, we had a big company meeting, at, which we had every week. And she's like, so does anybody have any cannabis experience? And I'm thinking they're just like pulling my leg. Like they're just trying to see if I smoke weed so they can fire me. Right. Like, so I just didn't say anything. I was just real, whatever, whatever. And then she's like, well, we're going to need to like put an ad out to find someone because we want to get into it. And I was like, oh, you're actually serious. So we ended up, uh, get, they gave me a system. We worked on trying to figure out a bunch of different runs on how to um, match the yields with uh, hydroponics and soil. Because if we couldn't do that, it just wasn't going to be viable financially. You know, why waste the time? So um, it took us four runs to do it. And what it was, was trying to find a, a way to have that longer nutrient retention in the soil especially for flowering in a way that didn't, wasn't necessarily um, in direct contact with the fish, um, which was the, the first goal. So what we ended up doing is running into a guy from Serbia who was doing something with cucumbers where he had media beds in, um, and I might even have a picture of it in one of my other uh, uh, things here. I'll show you in a minute. But uh, he basically had milk jugs that he had cut holes in the bottom to basically act like pots because they didn't, you know, just saving money as far as pots go and it's food, food grade. Uh, then they put hydrogen in it and then they put a layer of um, uh, rock wool on top of that uh, to basically act as a sponge and have the roots that could grow into that and through the, the regular flood and drain portion. And the idea was to have that sponge layer in the top part for nutrient retention and, uh, and in a way to kind of supplement without affecting the fish. So from that, we, we tried that and kind of had a, some positive results. It was about a 5 or 10% increase, but it seemed like it was the right idea. But then we got to thinking, and, and especially after, you know, growing up work with my grandparents and everything on a, a organic soil farm where they did everything, you know, from making their own pesticides to the compost, uh, all that stuff that we all kind of recognize now as more natural farming. 
they were doing that during the depression and stuff like that. That's what I grew up doing is farming. We never bought fertilizer. We never bought pesticides. We just made this stuff. You know, that was just how I knew farming was. So um, that was really kind of cool. Younger. Anyways. So uh, we thought about putting in a layer of burlap and then living soil on top of that to try and get some of the benefits from that and seeing how that would work in comparison. And that really came about trying to match the flavor of tomatoes. We were struggling trying to do that, and we ended up learning some nutrient stuff with the tomatoes and the aquaponics versus uh, uh, dialing in the chemistry with the silica and the chloride being lower in the tomatoes versus the soil, which is interesting. But that's a separate discussion for a separate time. But with the dual root zone, we were able to, to match those flavonoid uh, um, uh, levels and, and get almost identical flavor um, by having that living soil component. And then what we realized was when we started to do trials, especially with woodier crops and fruit trees, there was a monumental difference between having that soil there and not having it um, present with the side by side. So um, clearly there was a mycorrhizal fungi or some other endophyte that was you know, really thriving in the soil and needed to have that. So from there, we started to work on that. And then we started off with one third soil and then moved to 50% soil. And then for trees, we'll do 75% soil, which I'll show you. Um, but uh, that seems to be the, the different ratios for the different things. And what's cool about the dual root zone method is, is that you have the terrestrial microbiome on top, you have the aquatic microbiome on the bottom. Uh, the flood and drain action acts like a diaphragm to flush that air and get that accelerated gas exchange while allowing your plants to have basically double the microbiome exposure to the, the root system. You know, you have all those microbes in the, in the terrestrial soil and all those microbes in the, in the aquatic half of it that both stimulate the plant's um, immune system differently. You know, you have different bacteria and different fungi, different algaes and things that, that wake up different immune responses in the plant and create those extra flavonoids and terpenes and and whatever else it is, regardless of what type of crop you're after, be it medicinal or vegetable or other, um, that's why your aquaponic lettuce uh, tastes better than, than soil lettuce most of the time is because, you know, it has that extra flavonoid expression because of those microbial diversity. And one of the things we learned when we were doing the aquaponics association's defense against um, when they came after organic certification, uh, originally to try and do make aquaponics excluded from uh, organic certification, they just did a straight microbial sample where they said, okay, let's go to a bunch of these soil farms and test the microbial biodiversity of, of these organic soil farms versus the organic aquaponics. And what they found was, was that the organic aquaponics had on average 168% more total species diversity than most of the soil samples. So um, that was a huge kind of sh you know shocking thing to us because we thought, okay, maybe we got them by 10 or 15%, but not by that much. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's remarkable. So I did put together a couple of slides like we talked about. I can put up if you want me to. Absolutely. Sure. So it seems like the aquaponic circulation of water interconnects the plants in the way that a mycorrhizal network, hyphal network of, 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 made by fungi might, you know, that, that it's kind of like a simulation of that. Uh, in a healthy aquaponic system, you have a really large biodiversity of microbes in the soil, or sorry, in the, in the water, breaking down all those different various fish minerals and, and um, from the fish waste and on all the different things that are they're in there. You have rotifers and 
bacteria and all these different things that are breaking things down, but they're completely different webs than what you see in soil. So you have, you know, instead of two players, maybe there's eight different players in, in the chain or, or, you know, uh, greatly different things. And what was really bizarre is in that same study when they were trying to prove uh, greater diversity with the uh, aquaponics is none of the different facilities they tested had very much overlap with species. Almost all of them are greatly different in how the mineralization webs look like uh, under the microscope. And what's super cool is um, if you take a lot of those wonderful things like you teach and many of the other um, soil food web people and, and Korean natural farming practitioners and other things teach and combine it with the mineralization processes like you use in aquaponics for the mineralization tanks, you can unlock about an extra 70 to 80% more total mineral parts per million um, by adding a lot of those microbes back into the system uh, and, and during that mineralization process, um, particularly with liquid IMOs. Uh, and things like that. Uh, uh, it works incredibly well for increasing the productivity even further with these uh, aquaponic systems. That's why I think that it's kind of goofy to me sometimes when there's a bit of an animosity between the soil and the aquaponics. It's like we're, we're all doing the same thing, just one of them's got a little more water involved, you know. But functionally, building those balanced webs is what we're doing, regardless of it being in terrestrial soil or in the water of an aquaponic system. Do you have any of those mapped out? Because I would love to make like pictures with you around all that and and to show those 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 because the thing is it's like i was like you know like cut my teeth on elaine ingham so in my mind i'm always was always thinking like cakes and cookies and like this and that you know and that was like one pathway and then i've like in the process of deep study and, and and learning from a lot many different people it's like there's many different ways that plants are feeding and, and taking in nutrition so I, I what you're saying to me is it's like we need to understand these all these other maps and make it so that um everyone sees them and they're like holy cow that's another pathway because there could be more um and they complement each other so nicely. Remember, you know, 70 to 75% of these microbes will survive in that thin film layer where all your other microbes are surviving on your soil components. So by applying them to your garden, in fact, we've seen tremendous results. There's a gentleman called Little River Aquaponics over in eastern Oklahoma by Norman, a little west of here, actually. Um, but they've actually taken, you know, bright red clay and converted it into black, rich, soil by just taking their aquaponic water from the, the leftovers from their filters and adding it to the the, in, uh, the soil there and slowly increasing their garden and it completely transformed the the soil uh same way that compost tea does it's basically just an, another way you know very very similar in that regard so it's you know what i've been thinking a lot about the past two years is this concept of goldilocks um just right not too hot not too cold not too wet, not too dry. And there is an argument that has been proposed because you know, I mean, the origins of life are, are all theoretical. But one of the theories is that in puddles in these like uh, intermittent tidal pool slash puddles is where life may have begun. And it's like that sweet spot of habitat, like you're talking about that 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 moisture layer on the roots but that might be like the actual starting point for life and so this 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 edge sweet spot between extremes 
that that Goldilocks, I think that there's a lot of that, that if we just create alignment, we're going to see incredible new um, like revelations of biology and, and food and medicine. Uh, I think we're just beginning. Are, are you chasing new things right now? Oh, yeah. So my the big thing that I, I got really excited about was um, so I, I had a chance and I've been talking to for a long time, a gentleman out of Vietnam. His name is Quan Con Fem. Uh, and um, he does ferments with plant materials for grow aquaponics, basically organic hydro. So he's taking liquid IMO at a ratio of one to 20 uh, by volume of the container uh, and, and adding that to a container. And then uh, every 30 to 45 days, adding more. Um, to the container to basically create like a concentrate as the liquid IMO evaporates off. So it's almost like a hybrid of like JMS and liquid IMO. Like it's a weird kind of hybrid of the two methods, you know, uh, I guess if, if you're talking about it that way, but um, they're getting crazy, like 70, 80, 90,000 parts per million potassium with banana stalks and other stuff and getting to the same mineral content that you would get from an off the bottle shelf at the store. And if you can do that and create it organically and from ferments, that's amazing, right? So now you, you can supply those similar type methods, still have it in a similar way that people are used to working with. Because a lot of times people don't want to change their behavior with their grows. They just want to grow the way that they had to. But if you can make something similar to that, then, then you can make these fertilizers anywhere. And people don't need to import that. When I was in Africa and stuff, it all these uh, I'll leave them nameless, but all these big ag corp companies that um, uh, are over there. Um, they don't need to buy all of that crap anymore. They can just ferment the different plants on their property. Obviously, you're going to have some gaps in your stuff, but if you can get 80% of it, that's 80% of the nutrients you didn't need to buy, you know, you know and that you can put towards seeds or, um, you know, uh, a school, you know, education for your kids or whatever else that you feel is more appropriate for that cash, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. One of my, one of the things I wanted to discuss was the, it seems like most people have no idea how powerful this is because we should get into the details of what, what the dual root zone, um, like aquaponic system is because it's it, because it, the implications for urban food growing are so massive and jobs and local economies, local food. So, so let's dive into that because, because I think that there's a ton of people that want to start these systems. Sure. Yeah. If you want to um, just turn sharing on, I can throw up the, got some pictures ready for you. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, multiple participants can share simultaneously. Yep. There we go. There we go. I'm learning. It's all right. We're learning together. <laughs> all righty. So here you can see the, uh, we'll, we'll touch on this. So first off, aquaponics, if you aren't familiar, fish um, eat fish food. They, they poop out fish waste and um, their uh, nitrogen through respiration, which is also a large part of the nitrogen in aquaponics. Uh, the uh, microbes break down those different fish wastes into um, plant food uh, and then break, convert the nitrogen into mostly um uh, nitrate. Uh, and actually, there's a really interesting paper about um, cannabis recently about um, what them wanting no more than 10 to, to 30% ammonia to, and the rest of it nitrate. So it kind of explains why aquaponics grows a little bit faster for a lot of these woodier crops. Um, but um, basically, it becomes plant food. The plants strip out the nitrates, which is toxic to the fish. 
Um, this is how we set them up more on a small scale. You can see here uh, the soil layer above the flood and drain uh, portion of it and with a media base in the bottom half of the pots. And I'll kind of give you a little example. And you can make this out of a concrete mixing tray or a regular grow bed. If you have an overflow um, filter for your aquarium, you can run that to a centralized sump tank and, and easily plumb your aquarium to your grow, your grow tent, no problem. So um, I wanted to kind of touch on this concept of thinking of aquaponics, especially organic hydro, is more like aquatic soil. You have tons of different uh, aquatic food webs going on, lots of different um, microbial chains breaking down phosphorus, potassium, um, chelating iron, manganese, and all these other things um, in the aquatic realm. And I actually have a, just a couple other slides I can show you from a different deck that have a lot of those microbes uh, that have been found. There hasn't been a ton of testing on the different species yet, but um, there, uh, there, there's more of those being done all the time. So it's definitely something that I hope, uh, I know you have access to a lot of that stuff and, uh, more than I do at the moment. So uh, I would love, love to, to help. send you some samples. <laughs> oh yes, please. Um, uh, and we uh, you also see other things that we don't see in soil. So we see um, benefits to it with, um, in terms of expressions of cannabinoids and terpenes that we don't see. So and for instance, transneridol and neridol, uh, mononeridol are both heavily found in aquaponics and, and heavily expressed much more than the same cuts in soil uh, as one example. So, um, you know, it helps you cue in on certain medicinal compounds that you might be interested in uh, if you're looking down that. And we'll get into that. So this is the basics of, of dual root zones. So we have a soil layer on top. We have a burlap layer or other root permeable cloth. Doesn't have to be burlap, but just something the roots can grow through um, that still holds the soil up above the water because we're not trying to get a waking bed situation going. We want to have those two two areas of control. If I want to partially water stress this by, by reducing the, um, the amount of moisture in the upper part of the root zone, it's still going to trigger a, 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 you know, a minimal hormone response on that and help increase THC and things like that later on in the production. So we still want to have those two different layers of control up top. And then the bottom half here um, is our media. So we tend to like to use lava rock because it's high in silica and many other trace elements. Um, when we're doing commercial stuff but if you're doing anything on a home scale hydrogen is just fine if you're going to work with it all the time and get your hands in it hydrogen is much more forgiving on your hands uh, than lava rock is um, so what happens is is when this water level goes down either because of a loop siphon bell siphon or a timer or whatever other method you want to use for flooding and draining um, the air gets pulled down through the top of the pot here and drafted down through the soil uh, because of the suction action of, of that water going down and, and drafts fresh air into the root zone and, 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 and both in the soil and the lower half. And when it goes back up, it pushes that old air out. So uh, increasing your oxygen exchange and everything else in the root zone, which really helps with um, a whole bunch of different stuff in terms of microbial uh, uh, you know, happiness uh, in the soil. Uh, and with this too, what the other cool thing is, is say if I want to grow raspberries, blueberries, elderberries, I can do an, a, an acidic soil mix that's much more akin to what that plant wants and, and help it thrive and, and, and help increase production of it that way, um, while still having the same aquaponic base for my lettuce and my tomatoes and everything else in the system. So you can kind of uh, use this method to dial everything in on a per plant basis. And that's a happy, uh, happy plant there in one of the nurseries. <laughs> yeah, it is. You can also see the, the flood and drain layer there on where the, the dirt, the mud on the, the side of it ends. So, <laughs> so here's a, a dual root zone cabbage uh, with a little aquarium pharmaceutical uh, ammonia tester on it um, that we grew for one of the employees at Aquaponic Sources uh, Kiddo for uh, like a grow contest for their school. 
And then you can also see here example of dual root zone a lemon tree uh, and a 55 gallon drum. And we did this with Saturn peaches. We did this with um, uh, avocados. We did it with a whole bunch of different trees um, and it worked really well. Moringa works really well this way. Um, so, well, Moringa does fine in media beds too. It's not too special, but uh, if you are looking at any of the stone fruits or uh, any of your more trickier fruiting uh, fruit trees and you want to have something in the corner of your greenhouse, um, this can be a great way to integrate it into your aquaponic system and, and have it still be watered by the aquaponic system. The biggest thing with the trees was that we didn't water them as often. So we were watering them like every other day uh, with the flood and drain portion and giving them a longer dry down period. Um, and we were only flooding the bottom third to a quarter of the pot versus uh, uh, half and half. So that was the, the thing that kind of had to be adjusted for the trees. Uh, it seemed like that they did a lot better with those conditions. So. This is a R&D greenhouse we had in Colorado. We tried all different types of stuff. We had a gas propane recirculating water heater. We had solar heaters. We had compost heaters on this. We did combos of everything uh, to try and figure out climate control models and things like that. It was a lot of fun. Here's some cucumbers growing in a commercial facility uh, of commercial aquaponics facilities or cucumelons actually. They're incredibly addictive. If you've ever had cucumelons, they're more addictive than potato chips. Um, <laughs> uh, and you can see here we had slug problems. So we just put a little diatomaceous earth around them to keep the slugs away. Wow. Here's an example of pumpkins, uh, and, uh, another aquaponics facility in dual root zone. Um, and then here's an example of root crops. You can do turnips and beets and things like that as well in your in your media beds and get them above that flood layer so you get proper formation. Carrots as well, if they hit the water, they get real stringy. Um, they won't actually produce any mass. Um, but with this, uh, with the soil, with that even exterior pressure and everything in the upper portion, uh, it really allows them to grow and form nice for, for commercial resale. So you set the percentages for the plants inside each individual pot so that you can have the system handle annuals or perennials or whatever, and it's all set to each individual through their pot, right? Yeah. So for instance, um, for, for the most part, yeah. The only exception would be maybe things like, you know, pumpkins or um, watermelons or tomatoes or peppers, stuff you're going to grow a really long time. You might still top dress or top feed a couple of times throughout the grow cycle. But for the most part, if you're using good, healthy compost and good soil and everything and add a little extra aeration to it, um, you know, you don't have to add a whole lot. Is that strictly Korean natural farming uh, based compost? Um, so we use all different types of stuff depending on the client. Um, you know, half the time we're just buying a decent soil. There's a couple of companies we really like right now um, that are doing really good organic soil. Um, uh, but uh, um, yeah, for the most part, it kind of just depends on on a per farm basis more than anything else. Here's a, a elderberry tree. Uh, Marty's growing that out there. We actually have a big elderberry tree here at one of the farms I work with as well. Um, the one that we have here is about eight times the size of this one. So but this one's uh, I got more recent pictures of. So wow. <laughs> but again, you can see the soil portion in the upper part. And just on a 55 gallon drum, cut in half. You know, part of a as part of a regular old uh, aquaponic system. So, you know, and again, this is something that likes a little bit more acidic soil and doesn't really like the, the same conditions as most other stuff, but you know, you, you can top feed it and top dress it and really push production on it. So you can see here, um, it wasn't until we did a dual root zone expression or dual root zones that we actually hit the same yields. Um, it increases yields of, of cannabis between 30 and 50% uh, when compared to media bed controls. Um, so uh, 
it really does make a huge impact. It also increases uh, terpenes, flavonoids, cannabinoids, and a whole bunch of other um, uh, key metrics, on, regardless of what you're growing. Here's an example of a, a couple of things. So I'll show you these tomato plants and they're alive, but the left tomato, uh, the longer rooted one, it was in a dual root zone. The right one was just in the media bed. The left one had 44% more flower sites and fruit that was ripe two weeks before the one on the right did. Um, so, and that was the very first trial that we did with, with any fruit, fruiting crops with the dual root zone before we started working with it with cannabis. I think you may be sequestering more carbon than because the roots are so big, they're putting off so many more exudates. And so this may be a way to kind of like bend the rules and get plants to create even like much more carbon into like through photosynthesis. Oh yeah. Again, we're still just learning all the different things that, uh, that this is benefiting from the plant. One of the biggest things we've noticed is, powdery mildew, botrytis, uh, fusarium. We have much fewer issues with that. We don't have any issues with um, um, pythium or root rot at all because you have those living fungi in that upper portion of the root zone that are producing exudates and all those other things that are just completely obliterating them or outcompeting them entirely. So um, that's been another big benefit we've noticed is especially with powdery mildew, we're not having anywhere near as much of an issue than we did before we had the soil uh, involved. So it certainly is increasing that. Um, we also can provide most of the nutrients. Again, we're mostly having to add nutrients in the systems as far as iron and manganese, just because of the way that that gets broken down with oxidation um, in the aquatic environment. Iron just doesn't stay um, unoxidized very long in water. So, and you have to have it in that Fe2 form where they don't really want to touch it. So um, mm -hmm. that seems to be the biggest thing. And then occasionally a little tweaking with micronutrients. Molybdenum, remember, gets, and people don't talk about this, gets plowed through much faster in aquaponics as well because of that nitrate conversion uh, in the plant. So the plants strip it out of systems much faster than hydroponics. Um, so uh, you can see here, those are the same two plants with the longer roots. There's the one in the pot, and then the other one is right there next to it. And you can see here, this one's that fruit that was well set before that one had even, you know, gotten to flowering. So um, they were, it was almost a comical difference. Beautiful. <laughs> So as far as cannabis goes, we've noticed anywhere from a 15 to 20% increase in THC. Um, we've noticed some cases up to 100% increase in CBD with 30% uh, being an average increase in CBD cultivars. Um, and then we've noticed a 30 to 52% overall yield increase in comparisons. We've also noticed huge spikes in THCV and CBDV when it's configured properly, as well as CBG. And so we've hit 17% in some internal testing with THCV in some of our tests. So, um, it certainly, again, it gives you a lot of knobs and dials to turn because you can create that soil mix in so many different ways. You can you can do whatever you want with the aquatic biology. It just kind of gives you more knobs and levers to turn, you know? Yeah, and it just seems like this is a completely new way of going about it because of this breakthrough. Oh, yeah, and to me, it just makes so much sense. Of course, the plants are going to do better if they have a second biome, you know, that they're exposed to, you know, why wouldn't they have a healthier immune system that's more reactive and producing more secondary metabolites. So, um, yeah, so we've had a pretty big increase with terpenes as well. Uh, again, mo almost all of our stuff is testing at 2.5 or higher. Um, uh, many of them over 4%. So um, we're 
we're not doing too bad on that. Um, this is the other cool thing is you can grow tons of different fungi. This is all stuff that was just inoculated from IMO. None of this stuff was stuff that we added. Um, this is just stuff that just found its way into the into the soil through a normal inoculants. So this, you know, having living soil like that, you're not going to end up with, you know, all kinds of weird mystery fungal problems. If you have healthy mycelium that are throwing fruit off like that, you know, they're clearly uh, keeping that soil nice and healthy and, and giving the same benefits that you see in living soil beds. So uh, you're just doing it on a little bit smaller scale. Here's an example of with and without supplementation. Um, on the left was a farm that was, was following all the supplementation. Um, they had someone come in and try to convince them that they didn't need to do that and um, switch to an aquaponic fish food that had all the nutrients in it. Um, and the mineralization doesn't work quite the same way um, uh, on that. And um, you can see here without just a small amount of supplementation to adjust it, uh, it can go, go south pretty quickly if, uh, if you have a pretty major adjustment in that. So, um, definitely avoid people that are trying to sell you fish feeds that will fix all of your nutrient problems. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, here's an example of a run that Marty and I did for our educational classes. And you can see here in the, the front row is uh, no supplementation. Um, it's kind of hard to see the middle row there because it's almost hidden by the front one. But the middle row is just with vermicompost um, a tea. And then the back row is the same thing with just 10% additional nutrients on top of all the rest of it. And you can see it makes quite a bit of difference, even at those very tiny levels, just giving a little bit of a, uh, uh, minerals for them to work with uh, makes a big deal. And that's Korean natural farming, correct? Um, we did Korean natural farming stuff. There's a little bit of, of organic mineral supplements, but nothing that's synthetic, nothing petroleum-based or anything like that. Nice. Yeah. A lot of that stuff just kills fish. So we kind of, we have this forced honesty with aquaponics because I can't cheat. If I cheat, the fish die. And then it's kind of obvious that I cheated. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and you can see here on the left is with the supplementation on the right is the unsupplemented. And you can see here, you could still smoke the one on the right, but you'd rather have the one on the left. You know, let's just be honest. <laughs> it's stressed. You can totally tell it's stressed. Yep. Yellowing. Burn tips yeah. too. Yep. So, and you can see here again, there's another comparison. Uh, again, we've talked about the 38 to 46 additional plant sites um, and yield um, a huge reduction in powdery mildew, uh, a big increase in flavonoids, uh, increased growth rates as well. Um, in flowering, we get a 7 to 15% increase in uh, our reduction in total flowering time. So, we have faster turnover uh, for our facilities as well. So here's an example of dual root zone um, DWC versus media beds. The DWC is a little bit cheaper to set up because you don't have to buy the media and you don't have to deal with all that. It's also better for colder climates because it acts as a thermal battery. Um, you, can, you can basically heat the water and heat the facility much cheaper that way. Um, whereas the media beds have a little bit faster grow times because you have that better gas exchange, sorry, the better gas exchange in the soil going up and down. Um, whereas you don't have that gas exchange in the water. You, you have aeration and stuff, but it's not quite uh, the, the same growth rate as the media beds when we've done side-by-sides. But they both work well. Um, the media, the DWC is really nice for converting existing letting, lettuce facilities. And then you can see here, um, we've tried a whole bunch of different things. We've tried waking beds, we've tried media beds, we've tried DWC up there. In the top right is green relief. Um, I used to work with them back when they first got started. You probably heard of them if you've ever looked up aquaponic cannabis. They were the first ones to get a commercial license in Canada doing it. Um, and uh, they did a whole bunch of trials as well, uh, aside from the stuff that we did in Colorado. 
but basically, um, we, the best results we've had were with the media beds. Um, DWC can work, but wicking beds, we just had too many issues with the last week or two having um, just problems with the, the, the roots dying back, right? The same way that the plant's dropping off fan leaves, it's starting to cut back on how much it's feeding its extended root system. And when you have that much microbial activity in the water ready to break everything down instantly, um, we were having issues that last week or two. I think we could solve it now, especially with regular liquid IMO or labs dosing right at the end. I think we could definitely pull it off. But at the time, we, we just didn't have the knowledge. I, I wasn't exposed to create natural farming back when I first started this stuff. So um, I think we could do it now, but I don't think uh, I don't think it's viable uh, in terms of commercial production because it's just too finicky. And when you're at a commercial scale and you have thousands of plants, anything that's finicky is not worth your time. <laughs> So what are the fish eating? Sure. So um, we actually have um, a wide range of different fish feeds. So for the most part, we'll use traditional game feed, and then we'll supplement that with uh, labs curds. Uh, that's one thing that we feed all the time. And it, labs curds is really good because um, not only does it have vitamin B and um, a whole bunch of other uh, proteins and fats in it, but it also reduces um, fin rot we've noticed so bluegills and yellow perch really like to beat the living crap out of each other in aquaculture settings and they often will get fin rot because they, they nip at each other all the time well, we've noticed since we fed the the labs curds they don't get those secondary fin rot infections we're not getting the, the weird fungal infections we're not losing like a a random bluegill here and there because it got beat up like they just don't seem to be you know anywhere near as um affected by that when they do beat on each other a little bit. So that's really helped with mortality rates, especially with the more aggressive fish species and aquaculture and something I think um, is, you're going to see in the future. The other cool thing that we've, um, and there was actually a study at KSU with labs, Kentucky State University, and they showed that increased fish growth rate by 15 to 18%, but increased plant growth rate by 15 to 20% when they were doing it across a bunch of different plants. So lactobacillus is really good for adding to your aquaponic system. The other cool thing about labs, and I've used it three times this way to treat non-human um, pathogenic E. coli when people test it hot for it in their systems is using lactobacillus to treat the E. coli in these commercial systems without breaking the mineralization cycle. So we were able to treat them after 30 days at a dose of one to 1,000, and, and it would completely eliminate any detectable E. coli uh, as far as what the food safety people were concerned about. Will you put your contact information back up that final slide? Sure. I want people to be able to see all that. So, wow. So just like with lab is a primary component of EM, it's it feels like there are these microbes that are guiding key digestion processes that that are also endophytes that are also saprophytes that you know what I mean like there are these like guardian microbes and it feels like considering that you guys have 168% more on average that there are some more guardian angels out there that um we haven't met yet well, yeah, I know Chris has had really good luck with treating some mosaic viruses and nightshades with liquid IMO and things like that. So I think that the more we learn with this, we're going to find different ways to culture these different groups that we're more trying to target for applications and things like pest control. We've talked about IPMO when we were out at, in, in um, 
at myceliate and things like that, where these different practices where you can, you know, craft it in a certain way where that's the majority of what you're, you're trying to collect and then reapply those in a, in a more specific way. And I think that really is the best way to go about it, especially if you're trying to be as, as ecologically friendly with your local environment as possible and, and for, you know, the overall health of our, our planet. I mean, the planet's dying right now, you know, so we got to do something quick. Yeah. Yeah. And people are trying to like take advantage of that and twist it to their advantage. And it's just sickening when the solutions are so clear, simple, empowering, and we can involve kids, we can involve families, we can involve people who, you know, can work a lot of jobs. Like the, the thing is, yeah, it's frustrating, but this is why it's so good. And it feels so amazing to, to meet people like you and to talk about these things, because like what, what would happen if, if this became something that became the primary focus, like the mission to the moon level focus, if aquaponics and cities combined, like, what would that look like? What, like, what couldn't it solve? The cool thing about aquaponics is I can put it anywhere. You give me a parking lot, give me like a place where the soil is too contaminated because it was a junkyard. Like that's, what's cool about aquaponics. It fits the niche where, you know, soil is wonderful. And, and it's great when you have a, a place that doesn't have heavy metals or other contamination, but if you have an area that's contaminated, what are you supposed to do? Like grow for four years before hemp and, and put it in a landfill somewhere so that you can finally use the soil. Like, People don't want to pay for four years worth of remediation unless it's a big corporation that's you know legally obligated. So, um, you know, these offer solutions for people. I know the first aquaponic system I ever saw was down on um, uh, uh, Broadway uh, in Philadelphia at the end of South Street. There's a big public garden and they had a little aquaponic demonstration system. And that was the first time I ever saw one. Uh, growing up as a kid down in Philadelphia, oh, I was a teenager, I guess, at the time, but in Philadelphia, um, and uh, that really kind of blew me away that they were just had this recirculating thing growing along the side of the wall that had all the little gutter systems and all run into a big IBC tote. And that was so neat and kind of changed the way I thought about it. But I really got into aquaponics because of reptile tanks. I'm a big, uh, real big into reptile breeding and having live plants in the systems that animals do healthier. That it doesn't smell bad. Like they're much, much better for the animals and maintaining humidity levels and all the rest of it. So we used to create things back in the day called river tanks. And that's how I got into aquaponics was these river tanks. And we put orchids in them and pitcher plants and all kinds of cool stuff in them and had the lizards and geckos and chameleons and everything and the fish across the bottom and, and all that. So that's how I got into aquaponics. And then when I got into the pet trade, um, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the pet trade and the cannabis trade. So we started doing the same kind of grows with that. And then when I moved out West, I, um, I, there was a, a job opportunity at an aquaponics facility. Uh, and working for aquaponic source and their R&D and product development. It was like, well, this is, this is pretty cool. We can, we can totally make this work. And then uh, they legalized cannabis right after that. So and it's short version, I'm leaving a lot <laughs> out, but, but I think it's funny how going from reptile tanks to that, uh, it really is a uh, very similar, uh, the same reasons why we're doing it. Those microbes that in those plants in the reptile tank were preventing the smell because they were consuming that, that reptile waste and the, and the funkiness of the water and all that and filtering it out the same way that we're doing it now for mineralization to grow in plants. You know, it's just didn't put all the dots together yet. You know? Yeah. So when you hear that there's headlines saying that we're having a nitrogen and a fertilizer um, shortage, how do you react to that? 
I don't understand how that's even possible, like especially with nitrogen wise. It's comical to me. And actually, I've been talking to a couple of people out here in Oklahoma about just setting up warehouses, doing aquaculture and then selling mineralized fish waste with delivery trucks and running it right out to the boom spreaders because it's cheaper. I, we did the math on it and we could actually make a pretty penny and, and it's cheaper and less, you know, hell of a lot more carbon neutral to ship something five, 10 miles down the street and, and grow the fish here and sell the fish than it is to import from you know Europe or Asia or wherever else, especially with prices being eight, nine times or more what they were a year or two ago. You know, aquaculture and nitrogen is, is going to be quickly become a, a big source. And on the phosphorus side, like there's so many microbes that that you know gather phosphorus in huge quantities, especially algae and cyanobacteria. Like, how is it that we're running out if all these microbes can do it? It just seems like we just need to find a better way to culture these microbes. And we can solve all this. It's just we're not thinking about it in the right way. But I think that you're, you're seeing this huge, and it's horrible because it's happening because of the Ukraine war, but um, you're seeing this huge turn towards organic production because it's not financially viable to do it the old way anymore. And that's good for the planet in terms of the farming method changing. I think it's horrible what's happening in Ukraine, but um, I, one of the side effects of that is the, the turn towards organics, which I think is not going to be more long-term because financially, once they start to see the numbers, they're going to move that direction. What's going to happen? That's what's kind of I'm kind of curious about is what is a what does a world look like when you have corporate organic mass production? Like what what are they going to figure out, or what what kind of methods are they going to do to make it work on those bigger scales? Is kind of what I'm curious on. And, um, you know, I think the thing one of the things I'm most excited about that you're doing actually is the excuse me DNA testing. You know we're going to finally be able to understand what's going on in a lot of these mystery issues and mystery questions that we've had about our soil because the cost of those is plummeting right now. And I think right. another couple of years, those will be something that everyone has next to the microscope, you know, it'll be that, that common. Yeah. And it should be, I'm really excited to DNA test your, your water and your soil separately because whew, that's going to be amazing. And maybe I should, Oh, I don't know if I can bring everything. I totally want to bring like a portable lab, but that's way. <laughs> you, the nice thing is you, you live driving distance from a bunch of the farms I work with. So yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave it anonymous, but you're not super too. far. Because if we could do plant sap, we could show what's in the water, what's in the soil and what's in the plant sap. And if we do that same kind of correlation, with like just the the watering water, the the soil and the plants up for a, a threshold, a soil space system, we'll actually probably see that there's more endophytes that are coming out of your system that way. So we did a bunch of t tissue analysis at the aquaponics source where we were testing mm -hmm. water at a certain, okay, we added this many grams of X mineral to the water and it came out to this much in tissue. And that was how we managed to refine the, the PPM numbers because no one knew what parts per million the water should be for an aquaponic system for any crop. Like there was some university studies and stuff, but there was nothing that was like, okay, this has been like cross-confirmed with tissue samples in the known range for what the tissue should be for a lettuce plant. You know what I mean? That kind of work wasn't done until we started doing it at the lab there at Aquaponic Source, which was super cool. Um, and one of the things I loved about that was the, all, all the lab work. I mean, every week, every other week, we were sending off samples to CU and we sent them off all the time. And then when cannabis came around, 
we couldn't really do cannabis. So we put like an extra half ounce at the bottom of the box, you know, under the cardboard bottom and another couple samples for the, you know, or whatever, allegedly um, <laughs> to get those done. So that helped us refine a lot of stuff before you could really get that stuff done simply. And then um, I haven't had access to tissue sampling recently, but uh, it's definitely something I'd, I would love to find out what your results were versus some of the old ones and, and stuff like that. I think it'd be really cool. I also think it would be great to get the the plant sap analysis cheaper and done in the U.S. I know that people have to send their stuff to Europe to do that, and it's like the cutting edge and all. But unless it's something that we can, you know, keep in our own workshops and in our own communities and make affordable so it's more widely used, it's going to be hard um, for it to be more valuable um, to, to the community. Cannabis. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 actually, there's there's actually um, people who have tried to do even bricks with cannabis who have gotten frustrated because um, the plants are just too dry; it's hard to get. And there's now these like little handy dandy presses that people have, um, where it's actually your 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 it's like a um, a vice, and you're just you're just pulling out just the the teeniest bit of juice, but it's getting it out. So. I think there's a lot, there's so much that we need to, and I think one of the, one of the key pieces in, in showing people what's possible is your database. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I actually put together, and this is, I didn't write any of this data. This is all just trying to crowdsource a whole bunch of different things at once. So I got kind of frustrated trying to find this info. I built this for myself and went, screw it. I need to just put it into a web form. So you can go to, if anyone's out there and they want to learn, you know, they want to balance their compost, they want to create their own ferments and FPJs, find out what's in it. Um, it's kind of a, a similar to some of the work that um, uh, Nigel Palmer, who will be on my show on Thursday, actually, um, has done a lot of work down the similar space as well, which I didn't realize until recently. Um, but uh, so basically you can go here, opennutrientproject.com, takes you to this page. Um, it has instructions on how to use it. Um, and what our goals are. But basically, you, you figure out what preparation you want to make. Uh, then you go down to the nutrient section. So I want to pick a potassium plant from my yard. So this is all the different plants sorted by um, Latin names so that, you know, if you translate this using Google Translator, it'll still make sense to you because um, common names just go out the window when you do any kind of translation. Um, and then this is all sorted by average minimum parts per million content. So you can choose based off of what has the average highest mineral content for what you're after, what part of the plant and everything. And this is sourced from Dukes, but you can click the name of any of these. It'll take you back to the source material. So if you want to question what's on there or you want to see more from that source, um, you know, it takes you right to the source. And then the, the main source is linked at the top of each page. But there are some that are um, from Dukes that we were kind of aggregating a bunch of different databases together. The other cool thing is you can go up here to the testing. So you've made your tea or your ferment or your FPJ or your JDOM. Um, you can go here and find all the different nutrient test kits um, by manufacturer has a link to the manufacturer's page um, and to retail pages if you want to click a retail awesome. link this um, is but really this, awesome so this just helps you test for what you want and this has over 200 different things we have heavy metals um you know um every all the plant essential nutrients uh, as well as like some pathogens a paraquat test on here formaldehyde like some other contaminants so um, just kind of everything that would be relevant um, that was on Lamote or Hatch or um, 
you know, Hannah has all their different, you know, easy to use tests. I don't have the super expensive stuff on here, but most people aren't interested in, but you know, if you're interested in that, you're going to already do the homework on that. It also has links to two um, people you can send off water samples to too. So if you don't want to deal with all this and you just want to pay somebody to do it, um, yeah, you have links to that as well so that you can actually understand what it is that you created in the mineral content. So um, we also have MPK values for everything under the sun that's organic input. So if you want to know what it is, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different organic inputs uh, on here. Um, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, and then we also have uh, a way where you can submit your own um, input. So if you created something and you want to add it to the database, you can go right here and add it to the database and it'll spit it out into the spreadsheet, which is on the last page here. Um, I'm still working on making this format a little nicer, so bear with me, but it's a work in progress, but it's all there. And we have uh, thousands and thousands of plants. We also have heavy metals in there. So if you're worried about a certain plant uh, accumulating them, if it's known to accumulate those heavy metals, we have it listed as well to try and help you avoid those. Um, so um, we'll have the soil testing section up soon, and then I'll have a bunch of example methods for, um, you know, preparation so that people have an idea of, okay, well here, you know, you can modify this whoever you want, but here's like the, the traditional way that people teach it or whatever, or at least a, a base idea of how to do it and links to some, some publicly available sources for that. So um, I think uh, it really helped bring all these different organic tribes together under one roof uh, and so that we can stop, you know, I think there's a lot of, arguments about mineral content of certain things and things like that. And it's like, there's totally minerals in this stuff. Like, especially FPJs, people often say, well, it's not for minerals. Well, have you ever tested one? Because there's a lot of minerals in there and they're bioavailable, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's kind of trying to end a lot of those arguments. And then also, hey, if you had a one-stop shop where you can create all the inputs that you need or, or as many as you're, you're capable of making off of the plants from your own property, I think that's kind of the goal of most of them permaculturalist is to try and resource as much as they can off of their own property in many different ways. But a lot of people haven't been exposed to things like liquid IMO ferments or FPJs or um, JADAMs or all the different things that people are out there. Or if they are, they only know the one way and they don't know the other ways that complement each other because all this stuff complements each other. There's a couple of them that are a little bit combative, but for the most part, you know, you, you get different benefits from each one. It's kind of like your spice rack, right? You're just mixing, a, I want a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this to make a, a good pasta, a good soup, you know, or, or chili, you know? So I think it, I think rather than trying to think of, oh, you have to do, you know, uh, uh, KNF versus soil food, work. no, if you do both, they, they complement each other really well. So why, 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 why is there any kind of this or that when it's both, you know? Yeah. That's exactly how I felt um, and why I created that regenerative soil book. Did you, have you been doing some adaptations with Korean natural farming or are you feeling like that's just a one-to-one? Okay. -one? No, no. So I love, I don't, to me, Korean natural farming is a machine that you put inputs into and, um, you know, you get something weird out. So for instance, I can actually throw up uh, the blue labs. So we, we found, so we were making labs one day. And we were talking and screwing around and um, we knocked over a bunch of powdered spirulina that we were using for spirulina. If you mix it with a low percentage uh, at a low percentage of water and you use it when you're dunking your um, uh, seed start plugs, um, when you're doing it in a commercial thing, totally prevents algae growth. There's some kind of uh, compound in the spirulina that prevents algae from growing. So you can just kind of like soak them in that and the spirulina water and it stops all that stuff from happening. Some people get really annoyed with it or whatever. 
So that was why we had it. So we were talking and knocked it over with our hands and spilled a bunch of spirulina into the labs. And it was like, well, it's not going to hurt anything. Like it didn't ruin the labs, but whatever. So we just closed it up and it came out looking like this. So it isolated the phycocyanin from the lactobacillus or from the spirulina in a way that didn't require heat or fire, which I couldn't find much documentation on. With all the other methods, you use a heat source for for phycocyanin isolation. So um, it looks incredible. Like the color you get out of it is just, you know, you did it right if the color's right. <laughs> but what's cool about it is it accelerates um, growth rates on plants, like a fast forward button. And it makes them grow much, much faster, but it's a thin layer. So what you do is you, you scrape, you take off the curds off the top and you'll be left with like a, a thinner neon blue layer that's a, a lighter density. You base that off and that's your super lab. I call it super labs. Um, but the, uh, what's cool about it is, so I had an ex-girlfriend, one of the reasons why she's my ex-girlfriend, she didn't water my pepper starts that were three or four weeks old and they're all in party cups and they're all about, I don't know, four to six inches tall. And they all were dried to the bone. You, know, you couldn't stick your finger in the soil. Like they were done, right? So the, the leaves were so dry that they were like paper. Uh, you could crumble, you know? So I was like, well, they're, they're all toast, but I spent a lot of money on these. So I'm going to, you know, throw everything in the kitchen sink to see if I can bring them back. So we used the super labs just because I happened to have a big batch of it that I was going to use when I got back. And um, we took it and put it on all the peppers. And within three days, all there was new growth nodes at all the dead leaves on all, almost all the peppers. I couldn't believe it. It resurrected them practically. It was insane. Um, but uh, it is really, really interesting stuff. And if anyone wants the recipe, you can go ahead and copy it. They're more than welcome to there. Um, but basically, it's just kind of like a longer form of labs um, with the spirulina and a little bit of kelp. Um, it works without the kelp. But if you don't have the kelp component in it, it has like a, a delayed response time on the plants. It seems like the, the uh, oxins and stuff and the kelp are really accelerating the uptake and making more of a, a little bit more vigor and a little bit more of a snappy response to it. Um, again, that's purely speculation. You know, it's just me screwing around with this recipe. I don't, I don't have any documentation on the hormone stuff of the plant on the inside of it and response, but it seems to have a much faster response with the kelp. So. Welcome to to copy that or use it as you want. Incredible. I'll have it up on my Instagram as well if anyone needs it again and forgets it. Wow, this is awesome. But what I think is is that we could find other plants. Like if spirulina does that, what do all the other plants do? Right? Like what happens if I take and powder or or shred and do like silica, uh, uh, horsetail for silica or stinging nettle for silica or, you know, all these other stuff with these lab ferments, I think is a new way that we can create mineral-based compounds or even hormone-based compounds uh, or, you know, different ways to isolate things that we haven't played with yet. And I think too, playing with different strains of lactobacillus. So maybe trying one with kombucha versus kefir versus traditional labs, lab collections and, and looking into the differences between that and, and the different species there. And I think there's a lot of different ways that you can screw with this and, and get different results in a way that's repeatable. Yeah. I used to think of lab as just for changing nitrogen, but this, I mean, makes it seem like it's uh it's like an alchemist, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's changing a lot of things. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's the kind of the beauty about KNF and natural farming is that there's a lot of these different methods. 
um, uh, you know, Nigel, Nigel Palmer likes to boil and simmer some of his stuff. And I don't think anybody else talks about boiling or simmering stuff. So there's all these different natural farmers that have their, Hey, I, I want to try it this way and do this. And they find these other new ways of creating these inputs or isolates, but they're all, you know, coming from that same starting point of master Cho and uh, the other gentleman whose name I'm forgetting out of Japan. Um, I think I know why Nigel does that. And maybe you can ask him, but I was in an interview with Dr. James White and he was telling me about how I think the Iroquois, he said, used to gather the roots from native plants that were cousin to the plants they were growing and they would put it into a bowl that they would like, they would heat, lightly heat and and then they would soak their seeds in that water and i was like what would that do and just off the cuff he goes well i guess it would wake up the lactobacillus and i was like and then just kind of we just kept going with the interview but that's probably what he's doing he's waking up specific lactobacilli and they're going to work yeah, and speaking of lactobacilli, uh, a shout out Clackamas Coot. Uh, I didn't know that until I was having a conversation with him about uh, using bamboo shoot, uh, fermented bamboo shoots as a starter for that. It has like over 400 different types of lactobacillus. And hey, if you're looking for an off the shelf version, that's great, especially if you have a Chinatown or something nearby, you can get that, you know, real easy. Why? I mean, everyone talks about how that's like spreads really aggressively, but bamboo right now, if you go and try to buy like a bamboo stick, a six foot tall bamboo stick that's dried. It is expensive and I don't understand it. It's like, I want Moso for us so we can build things out of, out of like giant bamboo. And if it spreads so aggressively, I don't understand why people aren't doing it. This is a cue for someone who's listening to now grow a bamboo forest for everyone. So <laughs> there's also bamboo vinegar. I've never figured out how to make that work perfectly. Michael Whitman is like swears by it, but I haven't. But I know, I mean, there's so much to bamboo. So thinking about all of this, I feel motivated and I feel compelled to add this into the, the, the system I'm building here because of the biology and because of just like the fact that I can control things more the fact that I can grow things that are outside of season, that I can grow things that are a little bit outside of my climate and be a little bit more tropical. Um, and then also the water saving uh, aspect, because you're, you're recycling the water constantly. What kind of system, like what size system should we think to, like if we've got like a large garden or a small farm, um, what kind of system should we kind of like look to start with? What kind of investment in size? Sure. So I actually have some slides on this on the same deck here. It's going to go back a little further. Um, sorry. There we go. Okay. So if you're looking for something on the super small side, you can go with like an IBC to or a, a tough tote from Lowe's a concrete mixing tray, a little standpipe and a little hydroponic flood and drain kit, and you're good to go. And you can do some little dual root zone pots. This was just a, a patio garden deck. I used to teach a little workshop and you, you know, I'd buy all these and it's part of the cost of the class and you go home with one. Um, uh, back when I was teaching in Boulder. 
but uh, but yeah, so this is like the smallest size, and you could even do this in your your closet or next to your fish tank with an overflow box you get from the saltwater aquarium store. Just run the the a Y off of your pump coming from your your tough tote back to the media bed and back to the aquarium. Uh, make sure you have valves on it so you can get some flow control. Otherwise, you'll regret it. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, yes, or you can run two separate pumps and just run a flood and drain off of that with a separate timer, depending on how skilled you are with uh, bell siphons or loop siphons. Um, so that's kind of your smaller model. Um, they also have aquarium to toppers as well. Or um, like this is a four by two model I built. This is about 230 bucks. I do have blueprints for this on the faith, um, Facebook group, uh, Aquaponic Cannabis Growers, um, AP Canna, uh, if, uh, Facebook group slash AP Canna. Uh, and then these are the other uh, ones you can get commercially. There's some other homemade ones. But. Uh, this is aqua sprouts so these guys have a school curriculum if you are doing home education uh he's a great guy he's actually out of austin uh texas as well uh down there and um is a great dude um uh he's been around for a long time and they have a, a full k through five i think it is curriculum for that um, which is great if you're doing home schools um, so this is kind of the home production so this would be enough to feed a decent sized family um you know you get a good rotation of um you know leafy greens and root crops and um, you know, some fruiting crop production along with fish, but you're not going to get a ton of meat out of this. Um, you know, you'd be able to harvest one or two tilapia a month, um, uh, you know, maybe one every week or two uh, out of this type of system if you're really balancing it out. Um, and this is the type of systems I used to design back at the aquaponics source. And then, so this is the example of the, the cucumber. I was looking for this picture earlier, the cucumbers that the guy in Serbia was doing with the milk carts. Nice. Yeah. Those are good examples of smaller systems. And on the bigger scale, you know, you're, you're looking at building your own grow beds and it's, it's a little bit different layout. We have a separate fish house and filtration with large mixing tanks and stuff like that. It's a little bit different um, for, for the larger scale, but for home scale, it's really easy just to get a regular little hang on the back aquarium filter used for wet dry and, and incorporate right into the sump tank of a standard, you know, hydroponic system and away you go. It's really, really simple. That's awesome. And you have a course on all of this that folks can take, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. They can go to apmjclass.com. Um, we actually have a, a, a special right now we're doing for Labor Day. You can take 75 bucks off if you use a coupon code labor. Um, and you can see here, we have a, a full length course. It's over seven days of content. We have about 400 new slides that Marty and I put together that I'm in the process of editing and getting up as well. Um, we're constantly adding new content every three to six months as we have um, new things that we discover, more data that we get and, and all that stuff. So definitely check it out. Um, uh, if you're looking for a, a you know, full length aquaponic cannabis content, um, it's a little bit more geared towards commercial, but it absolutely is applicable. And we have all the different stuff for dosing and everything like that for home scale as well. We also have dosing guides for, for nutrient issues organic and non-organic options, depending on what your goals are uh, and everything else and, and cover a whole lot of advanced um, topics in regards to um, mineralization, green natural farming, a whole bunch of other stuff in regards specifically to aquaponics. So there's a lot of different topics that we cover over the course. And we also have a ton of facilities of uh, background uh, tours of different large scale commercial facilities that are up and running. So you can see what an actual running farm looks like that's successful in selling product each month. Um, so it's not just us teaching. You also get to see behind the scenes of a lot of people that we've worked with as well. So it's kind of gives people a little bit different perspective on the, um, you know, uh, on what's going on with the industry. 
So is it just me or is, is cannabis harder to grow than other foods? And so when cannabis growers kind of crack the code, they become just, it's just easy to grow all like the, the other types of food. Well, yes, uh, the big advantage, and it's really obvious with aquaponics is cannabis has the money to do the R&D. Lettuce mm-hmm. growers do not have the overhead to go and do tissue samples each month or all this other stuff where we have, we're happy to throw a couple grand at, at learning something that might have a big payoff, you know, whereas the lettuce guys don't have that extra research or any income or, or, or capital at all. So that, that's really where it becomes an issue and why you're seeing so much more our research coming out of the cannabis side is you have lots of companies throwing just blank checks at these problems, especially in places like Canada and stuff, or at least maybe not so much now, but certainly the last couple of years and putting out a ton of data and hiring different people that were working in universities and stuff that you know, were able to mine through a lot of this, these different problems. And I think that that's really the biggest thing that you see with the cannabis industry is just that the difference in budget and taking those things and going back to cannabis, for instance, you know, we can make anything super purple if we just boost the molybdenum because the plants, if it has the anthocyanin production because it wants to produce that extra anthocyanin to lock up the molybdenum to prevent the nitrogen uptake issues and all that. But that same mechanism works just as well for your red sailless lettuce and your your purple bro- uh, broccoli and kale and everything else that's anthocyanin production uh, or producing in, in aquaponics So um, for the veggie side. So it makes it really easy to kind of solve a lot of those issues as well, where people are like, well, how do I fix the red? It's not red, but it used to be. And well, okay, it's your molybdenum. And this is why, and we do this all the time in cannabis because it helps with sales appeal, but on lettuce, it helps with sales appeal as well. So, um, you know, a lot of that stuff where we just had the money to test it out and, and do side-by-sides and all that has benefited the, the other uh, consulting that I do as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, in doing research for regenerative soil, I mean, I was, I was learning a ton from cannabis growers because because of that that fact, and I think that uh, more and more uh, other industries are going to have to realize they're going to have to hop in courses <laughs> to learn from cannabis growers how to do their own their own work better. Um, so I'm really excited about your course. I'm going to be checking it out, and uh, and I hope that everyone checks it out because. That this could solve so many, I mean, it is solving um, so many issues, but it could also solve all the shortages, the food shortages, the fertilizer shortages. It could give all the, the, the local industries, the, the, even the carbon footprints and all that jazz, all of that can be addressed, especially now with so much water shortages, water quality problems, just straight out of the tap. Even we have, we have an opportunity to create create really clean food and also monitor it. Um, I love, I love how this information just kind of like overflows into helping all understanding around soil, around food and around biology, because it's, it just keeps continues to show us uh, nature continues to teach us that there's still more and more to learn. So I'm I'm so excited to learn more from you, Steve, and uh, to hang out more and to visit. Have you visit me? I'm going to be setting up. Um, I don't know if it'll be this year or next year. I I probably not this year. Um, I've got a I've got a little bit much on my plate, but I want to do uh, an event down here that that 
you would be a speaker at because um, this information is, is, is key and critical to everything I'm doing and everything I will be doing. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I think it really complements, you know, other work like you're doing as well. If you had a permaculture farm, the, the aquaponics component can just be your nursery or it could be your backup water supply. It could be any number of these different things uh, or just, hey, your nitrogen source, you're just producing your nitrogen up there and feeding it out to the rest of the farm. So, uh, you know, it's not just about, hey, I think you should convert your farm. No, I don't, I don't think that's <laughs> applicable for most people, but it can very much be a component of your what you currently have and complement what you're already doing quite well. Thanks a lot for having me on, man. It's certainly been a blast. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely going to, I have the space to do something adventurous and I'm going to do it. So I've just got to start collecting the pieces. Thank you so much for inspiring me. And I'm sure there are many people watching and will watch that are going to follow in your footsteps that are going to take your class. And, and are you going to be working on a book? Yeah. So I have a book that I'm, I'm working on right now. I'm about 200 pages in and it's, it's going to end up being five or six. Yes. But, um, it's, it's basically going to be like a reference guide. Okay. Here's all the different things that we tried. Here's what happened when we tried these different things. Maybe you can see something that's wrong with R and D, but then here's all the different components in, in aquaponics as far as the different pieces that you need. Here's the ones that work. Here's the ones that don't. Here's the chemistry stuff. Here's the ranges that we found where it needs to be in. Here's all the different natural inputs that we use and basically kind of be like a reference guides for uh, you to keep at your farm or in your grow so that you could go back to when you need you know, have problems and stuff like that so um as well as just to start to start to finish uh build out so uh, i think people are really going to like it yeah yeah sign me up that's amazing i'm so excited I, that just came to me i was like wait a second <laughs> also trying to include like uh all the different things you'd run into in a hydro store so like okay this has these active ingredients Let's check and see if they're okay, because that's I get those questions like twice a day. And I think mm. if people had a reference book that they could just check to see if it's fish safe or see, you know, okay, well, that's good. We just don't mix it with this or whatever. Um, I think that people would also have a, a, you know, I get at least get less of those emails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's something about a book different from a website. Books are so much easier to, to feel like you've got this. So that is so awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm so excited for that book. And uh, and I'd love to check it out and give it a good re review and share it with my audience when it's time. I'll definitely have to get you a copy before I release it. Maybe I can hire you as an editor or something. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it and had a wonderful time meeting you last week and uh, spending time with you. I mean, we ended up staying up till like 2.30 in the morning the first night and we were like, we both have to go to bed because we'll end up staying up all night talking. We have to go to bed. I kept having uh, new thoughts. I was like, but wait, what about... <laughs> Yeah, we still ended up talking for another hour while we were laying down like back in the separate rooms. It was fucking hilarious. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that to curse. Sorry. I can't wait. I can't wait to, to hang out more. I was telling my wife, I was like, I'm going to have to go to Oklahoma. Yeah. We should, man. We have we have a really, really good event scene up here. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I mean, there's 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 so much happening. I think that people don't, if they look at the news, they're going to miss it. There's so much good happening right now in the world. And, uh, and man, you're, you're in, in the center of a lot of it. So thank you. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.
All right, everyone. Thank you for watching. This is the first live, and it's all thanks to Stevie. And 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 also Angel showed me how to do the the stream key things. So so thank you, everyone, and more to come. Have a wonderful week.